So the rest of you could turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, at least uh, uh, the chapter 5 part. We actually won't end up going into uh, chapter 6 and beyond in this study, but uh, just uh, chapter 5. And we come today to uh, a really important section of his sermon. The subject today is the subject of marriage and divorce. Um, and I'm just reminded as we, we come to this topic uh, today that there are people from all walks of life and all kinds of backgrounds here. And I just want to remind you that uh, I, don't have, uh, I don't have any agenda at all. We're just been, we've just been studying sermon, the sermon as a whole, Matthew chapter 5. But when we come to subject matter, that can be difficult to cover. We've got to be, um, uh, we've got to be consistent in what we do in teaching God's Word. And what does God say on the subject? Because he has a lot to say. And so just know my heart is just to share with you what God, God's Word says about marriage. Um, you know, if we're honest, all marriages have problems. There's not a perfect marriage in this room. If you're a married uh, person and you think you have a perfect marriage, well, congratulations. You're the great winner, as you found the only one that I've been aware of. Because all marriages have problems. Um, and the reason I know this to be true, because I would actually have to sit you down and talk to you if you were to declare you have the perfect marriage, is because I know that all marriages have problems because the first marriage problems began in the Garden of Eden. That's where they began. And you might know the story well that Eve was tempted to take of the forbidden fruit, and then she gave some to her husband. And after they, he ate, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves, and they hid from God. And when God came to find them, he didn't come looking for Eve. He came looking for Adam. And he asked where Adam was. And Adam sort of says, well, I'm over here hiding in this bush. <laughs> and he says, why are you hiding? Well, I realized I was naked. And that whole thing happens, right? And he says, well, how'd you know that you were naked? Did you, did you eat from that tree that I forbid you to eat from? And at that point, the blame game started. He said, well, it was the woman that you gave to me, right? There was a little bit of more blame than just the woman. He's sort of saying, insinuating, well, God, you're the one that gave that woman to me. But he says, you, you know, the woman uh, did it. And so then God goes to the woman, well, what, what's your excuse? Well, it was the serpent. And so then you have the typical passing the buck. And God deals with each uh, member of that whole situation. But in the, the, uh, the, the way that he deals with it, is that he does end up uh, cursing the marriage relationship. Something shifted that day. It wasn't um, God's fault. It was a result of the sin. What God is simply saying here in this curse is this is going to be the result. This is how that, that sin is going to affect this beautiful relationship. I created you as male and female. I created you as one flesh. And now something is going to sort of change how that looks. And the curse comes to us in Genesis 3.16. And he said this to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, Eve was created as a suitable helper. Um, that's how she was described. God looked at Adam. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a suitable helper. And that's Eve's role. She was created as the helper alongside Adam. Although Adam was supposed to lovingly lead 
the relationship, which is why he went looking for Adam first when the sin took place. But now something has shifted. Her desire for her husband was changed from a desire to help to a desire, well, the same desire that sin had for Cain. Do you remember we looked up that verse last week? We looked up and talked about the very first murder, the murder of uh, Abel by her, his brother Cain. Uh, in fact, I'll bring up the verse that we looked at because the same sentence structure is in this verse, Genesis 4, 7. This is God talking to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire, there's that word, is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin's desire in that moment, because Cain was angry, we talked about anger last week, sin was, he was angry. Sin's desire was to control and dominate him. And so by sin controlling and dominating him, he ended up committing the first murder. Well, that's the same word, the same desire word used of Eve. Her desire was changed from a desire to be a helper, to be helpful, to a desire to control or dominate, to control or dominate the relationship. Adam's role changed as well. He, it says here that his, he, he would rule over you. That's what it said in Genesis 3.16. Adam would now rule over his wife, not with loving guidance, but with stern control. And so in the Garden of Eden, the battle of the sexes began. Feminism, male chauvinism, all progressed from there. And God's divine plan for marriage was corrupted. What we look at and see in the world today, okay, I don't care how beautiful or perfect a marriage, and, and some people have been married many, many, many years, and they look back and go, what a beautiful, even their marriages fall short of what God ultimately intended. So please hear me when I say I'm not trying to say that what you see in the world today is the perfect uh, example of marriage. But as believers, as Christians, we do strive to achieve the original intention of marriage. Our role is to, is to live as close to that as we can. But today we see a, a quite a different picture. There is a propensity for divorce. Marriages uh, no longer last. And the reason is divorce is man's solution to problems of the heart. That's the first thing that we do. If there's a problem, the problem is always seen as the other person, just like we saw with Adam. Well, it was the woman that you gave me when the real problem was his own heart. So divorce is really a, a false solution. It's not the answer. The answer to the problem is forgiving love and restoring grace. Because we have all experienced that as believers, have we? We've received forgiveness and we experience his restoring grace. And in the Old Testament, the entire book of Hosea, if you ever read Hosea, is a picture of God's forgiving love and restoring grace. If you've read that, there's, uh, the, the prophet Hosea is married uh, to um, a prostitute. His wife's name is Gomer, which probably was the first problem, a weird name. But she was... She was unfaithful to him in every possible way that someone could be unfaithful in a relationship there. But Hosea, as you read through that book, he's consistently, faithfully forgiving no matter what this woman did. Their marriage was a picture of the relationship between God and his people. His people at the time, they were prostituting themselves with other gods. And yet God was consistently faithful and loving, willing to restore 
the relationship. So what we see in the Old Testament is that because marriage became sort of uh, distorted, we see all these things start to become uh, commonplace in the Old Testament, one of which is adultery. And adultery uh, was just a, a reality of life in the Old Testament, so was, so was divorce. It, it took place. And what the Bible does is it acknowledges things like divorce, but it never commands or never condones it, much like it treats things like slavery. It acknowledges that slavery exists, but it doesn't necessarily make a commentary on it, whether good or bad. Well, divorce is similar, although there is, are some things that we can pull from it, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But what we ultimately need is we need loving forgiveness and we need restoring grace uh, if we really hope to have successful marriages today, right? Communication, forgiveness that's constantly being displayed, and restoring grace. Now, coming to this sermon, you know, as I mentioned last week, Jesus has an audience that the majority of which are quite ignorant to what Scripture actually teaches. Remember, they, they didn't have copies of the Bibles themselves. It wasn't in their language and so they really had to trust what the scribes and Pharisees told them is true, okay? They're really at the mercy of the teaching of these scribes and Pharisees who had twisted it. And also, much of the teaching was, was based off the Talmud, which was just rabbinic traditions. So it wasn't even that they necessarily were getting the full doctrine of the Old Testament. And so Jesus here, in this Sermon on the Mount, in an effort to educate them here, has begun to teach the people about true righteousness, right? This is where we started. He claimed that what he was sharing sounded so far off that it wasn't contrary to the law, but it was actually a clarification of it because they hadn't really been told what the law really taught. And so to illustrate his point, he's begun to speak about their understanding of the law right here in the last few sections about you have heard what was said to those of old, right? This is what you have been taught is what he's saying. And first, he looked, and we looked at this last week, at murder. You, you've, been, you've been told about murder, uh, that if, if, you, if you commit murder, you'll be in danger of the judgment. But he went on to say, but I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He said, it's a, it goes deeper. It's a heart issue. Uh, and that's where he began, the heart. Anger would be enough to land you in court. But when you then progress to verbal expression to that anger, slander perhaps, and he gives an example of that, then you've kind of taken that next step and you deserve judgment. And then when you stand sort of self-righteously condemning everyone else, you're really in danger, he says, of hellfire because the heart hasn't been addressed. After addressing murder, he went to what? Adultery, right? And then he talked about that in verse 28. Look at it real quick. In verse 28, he said, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, remember, the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was death. We looked at that. But adultery could also be committed, he says, in your heart, just by looking at someone with lust. And really what Jesus' whole point with, with murder and with adultery is that God is more concerned about the heart not so much the outward, right? So he doesn't just want behavior modification. Jesus wants inward heart change. And while Jesus is on the subject of adultery, because we just talked about that last week, and he really talks about that all the way up to verse 30, he steps a bit further into that realm of marriage and teaches on divorce and remarriage. 
And we're just going to look at these two verses today because I just thought it's not something I can just rush through. There's just too much to talk about when we look at this very important area. So today we're just looking at these two verses. Let me just read them to begin with. In Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verses 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God, we do uh, need your spirit to be with us today as we look at this very important subject of marriage and divorce. We certainly cannot look to the world for the truth of this matter, and nor, sadly, today can we look at most churches for the truth of this matter. We come to you today to your word. Lord, would you just show us the truth? What is it that you desire from this all-important relationship called marriage? Guide us into this truth today, Lord, that we might know how we ought to live our lives in a better way that would glorify you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, so we're looking at the subject of divorce and remarriage. That's the topic uh, here. This is really a part two of, of last week, the You Have Heard section. And if you go to any church today, you're going to find one of four basic interpretations, not just from these two verses, but from all of the teaching of Scripture, at least what people think um, is allowed. What does the Bible teach about divorce or remarriage? Uh, The first uh, interpretation is this, that divorce is not permissible under any circumstances. So you have some sort of on this hard, rigid line that nowhere in Scripture is divorce ever uh, allowed. Uh, It doesn't matter the circumstance behind it. It just cannot be allowed. And when divorce does happen, anyone that is in a relationship beyond that, they go and get remarried, are now in an adulterous relationship. That is one interpretation of it. The second interpretation goes to the far extreme opposite end. Divorce and remarriage are permissible under any circumstances. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the circumstance, divorce, remarry, do what you want. Two extremes. Now, there are two more interpretations that you will run across in in our world today, and they fit in between those two extremes. Number three is this. Divorce is permissible under certain, certain circumstances, but remarriage, that is never permitted. So some think divorce does, does have a, a circumstance in which that is allowed, but you still may not remarry. And the fourth one is this. Both divorce and remarriage are permissible under certain circumstances. Now, I've given you four interpretations, and I have to tell you today that the Bible only teaches one. The Bible doesn't teach that all of these are there. Some of these are contrary. The Bible teaches one. And the reason I chose to just slow down and stick to just looking at two verses today in our passage is because we've got to get to the bottom of this. What does the Bible teach about it? It's only one possibility. Now, when we look at our passage today, Jesus begins by showing us what the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees was, okay? So this is where we start, the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 31, he again says a similar phrase, furthermore, it has been said. Now, we're starting with furthermore, which means we've got to back up a bit. What's he been talking about? He has been talking about adultery. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, 
you've, you've committed adultery. And, and, and what he started there was that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. He says, but I say to you that if you just look with your eyes and lust, you have committed adultery. And so furthermore, he's going on the same subject, adultery. It has been said, okay? It has been said. Now, the reason he says that is that in that time, there were two schools of Jewish thought. You kind of have to know these things. Hillel was one of the, the, the primary teachers of the time, and Hillel followed the second interpretation, if you had that down. That was the uh, extreme liberal end, that divorce and remarriage are always permitted under any circumstances whatsoever. But there was another a teacher, Shammai, and he believed that divorce was permissible only under very, very extreme uh, circumstances, a major offense maybe, perhaps. So Hillel, his interpretation was the most liberal, and wouldn't you know it, most people liked his interpretation because that would suit their life just well. And so by this period in Jewish history, a man uh, uh, could divorce his wife for just about anything he wanted, such trivial things as burning his meal or, or being embarrassed in front of his friends. I'm not joking. These are the kind of things a certificate of divorce could be uh, issued for, but that was the requirement. The requirement was you must give them a certificate of divorce. Now, the certificate provided a couple things for that wife. And you look at it in verse 31. This is what they are, Jesus is quoting, right? You have heard that it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is what you've been told, he says. Now, that certificate was really for the wife's benefit. It was really for her protection, that she wasn't just booted out of the house and had nowhere to go. It gave her proof that there was a legal separation that took place, and it sort of protected her from slander and accusations. And she could go, and then she was free to remarry, which it was assumed that she would do. So this certificate idea that, that Jesus is mentioning was not something that they had fabricated. The Pharisees just didn't just come up out of the blue, out of thin air with this, uh, hey, you know, uh, let's get rid of our wives. Let's, you know, make it legal. Let's put some kind of paperwork together here. Uh, let's get a certificate. They had actually came from an erroneous interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, and that's where we need to start. So would you turn with me to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 24? It's the last book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Very important that we go back to the beginning to see where this idea of this certificate came from. Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll just read all four verses here. This is really where it comes from. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Quite an interesting situation here. Now, what is God doing here in Deuteronomy 24? Is he commanding divorce? Is he condoning 
divorce. I'm going to tell you neither of those two. Let's just look at this for a moment. We're told here that the husband who sent her away is not allowed to remarry her if that uh, second husband dies or if the second husband divorces her because, quote, she's been defiled. Did you notice that? She's been defiled. Now, what we have to do is ask, why has this woman been defiled? I'll just tell you the answer to begin with, because the first divorce was not legitimate. She has been defiled because she went to remarry and now was in an adulterous relationship. And so she has been an adulterer, and so has that man. Now, let's just unpack this for a moment. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. If you look at those, those are just a series of conditions that lead up to the first husband's prohibition from remarrying her. Okay, the condition is first one is the husband finds uncleanness in his wife and he writes her a certificate of divorce. What you need to know, note here, is that there is no command for this man to do this. Do you see a command anywhere here at all? It's actually a situation. And Moses is saying when a man takes a wife and he marries her and he happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Moses doesn't say Thou shalt then write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand. What, what he is writing here is a situation, okay? There's no command. But what this does bring up, it brings up the question about this uncleanness. What is this uncleanness that this man has found in his wife that was enough to send her away? Is that uncleanness adultery? Well, I would tell you no. And the reason is the penalty for adultery was not give a certificate of divorce. The penalty for adultery was death. And I know that because it's just two chapters prior to this. Just look at it, Deuteronomy 22. So we're in 24, go to Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Moses has not just in two chapters time changed his mind and decided, no, there won't be a death penalty. I'll just give a more lenient uh, penalty. You can write a certificate of divorce. That is incorrect. The issue comes down to this uncleanness. I don't think it can refer to adultery. The word is not the same word used for adultery. The word is erva. I have it here for you, erva. It literally means the nakedness of the thing. Probably more for our words today would be shameful exposure. Most of your Bibles, if you have something other than New King James, might use the word indecency. Maybe you have a Bible that uses offensive or unseemly. All those words are the same, okay? The only place that we see this word uncleanness, or the most recent place that we see it, is also in the context of these chapters. It's in Deuteronomy 23. It's kind of um, disgusting, but we got to look at it because we're trying to find out what uncleanness is. Deuteronomy 23, verses 13 to 14. He says, uh, "'You shall have an implement among your equipment.'" And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. So he says you've got to have a little tool that you take outside when you go to use the toilet. Why? So you can cover it up. Why? Verse 14, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to, del- to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy that he may see no, and here is the word, unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So what is meant by this word in this time? It really covered every kind of shameful, improper, indecent behavior that would be unbecoming of a woman and embarrassing to the husband. And at this time, men 
were giving certificates of divorce because they were so shamed by the conduct of their wives. They would give a certificate to send them on their way. This was not adultery. Otherwise, the wife would have been stoned. The second condition you find in these series of conditions is that having received the certificate of divorce from her husband, she goes off and marries another man. And ultimately, this leads to the woman being placed into an adulterous relationship because the granting of the certificate did not make the divorce legitimate in God's eyes. This made it legitimate in the man's eyes. The third condition, her second husband divorces her or he dies. She cannot remarry because she has been defiled. Why? How has she been defiled at that point? Because she has committed adultery. So Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is not a command. In fact, what is happening here, this is not even an excuse for divorce. What he is trying to show is the potential evil of it. It is a warning. Men, if you're just starting to divorce your wives, look how easily you can put them in to an adulterous relationship. Far from a command, this is a warning. God hates things like this. But the most popular rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day, they interpreted Deuteronomy 24 as a command. And so men were allowed to divorce their wives with this uh, certificate. Listen, the Bible doesn't command it. It simply recognizes it as a reality. It just was something that took place. Now let me show you the teaching of the Old Testament a bit. The teaching of the Testament, that was the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, but the teaching of the Old Testament is important. You want to look at something, we want to look at how God challenged the nation of Israel for their, their spiritual fornication. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. You see here, God isn't commanding anything here. He is using the practice of divorce certificates as an illustration. You know, your mother's been put away. You're, you're illegitimate. They had transgressed his law. And so he's simply saying uh, a very similar thing. It's, it's as if you've been given a certificate of divorce because of your, your defilement. Jeremiah 3.1, he says something similar here. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him, it becomes another man's. May he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet, return to me, says the Lord. Now, look at that verse. I mean, uh, there, there's a question here that d- deserves a no answer, right? If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him, becomes another man's wife, can she return? No. The land would be greatly polluted. That's what he says. No. But God is so gracious, he says, but if this is talking about Israel, I want her to return to me, like the book of Hosea. She's been unfaithful, but I want her to return to me. So God acknowledges things like divorce, the certificate. Priests, for example, were forbidden to marry a divorced woman. In Leviticus 21, verse 7, we're told they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. So my point in just giving you these things is to show you that divorce existed. But far from encouraging divorce, most references to it in the Old Testament put restrictions on it. Don't have time to go into all of them today, but you might remember in Deuteronomy 22, a husband who falsely accused his wife of, quote, shameful deeds, okay, but was found, she was found to be innocent. He had to pay a hundred shekels of silver, and he was, um, uh, that was given to the father, and then he was, quote, could not divorce her all his days. 
Because he had tried to shame her, found out that he was wrong, had no evidence for that, he couldn't divorce her. In that same chapter, if a man slept with um, an unengaged version, then he had to pay 50 shekels of silver, and he was forced to marry her. And again, the, uh, the command was given, he cannot divorce her all his days. So if it's mentioned at all, it's mentioned with restrictions. God restricted it. But God did not prefer it. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that God hates divorce. I want to take you to the last book of the Old Testament. It's Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. So just go, well, you can almost back to Matthew 5 where we were and just make a little left-hand turn and you'll be in Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. This is the heart that God has and the thought he has about the divorce. Malachi 2 verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness, because you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you want to know God's real heart, he hates it. It's not what he intended is the point. But he recognizes it exists. Why? He recognizes there's a sinful fallen world. Okay. But I want you to show you God doesn't want it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't prefer it because it's not what he intended. A permanent union was intended. And that really takes us back to our passage and really the teaching of the New Testament. And I want to take you a little bit further in Matthew. We'll come to Matthew 5 in just a moment. I want to take you to Matthew 19 because we went there last week. In Matthew 19, we looked at verses 3 to 6. We stopped there. We'll look at those again, but we'll look beyond there as well. This is the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. We want to find out what the Bible thinks about marriage and divorce here as well. In Matthew 19, a a question is given to Jesus from the Pharisees in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So there's the question, okay? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, verse 4, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So we looked at this last week. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament there. He's quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 2, 24. He says that they were created male and female, and because of that reason, that There would come a time where they would leave and be joined. That word be joined is cleave, dabak. It's a firm, a permanent attachment that would take place. And he says, when that joining takes place, there is a one flesh that takes place, a spiritual and physical oneness. Two minds, two wills, two sets of emotions, two spirits all come together into one. He said, "It's, it's a mystery, And God has done it. God has joined it. And because he's done it, man cannot separate it. It's a permanent union. That's the point. But we didn't go into verse 7. 
this is very important. Verse 7 last week, we didn't look at, but we're looking at today. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? What could they be referring to? Deuteronomy 24. We just looked at it. That's why we took that time to look at it. Really, that's what God intended. Well, if God intended that, what was Moses doing? Why did he command that men could put their wives away with a certificate of divorce? We looked at it. Was there a command there? There was no command there. And Jesus says the same thing. Look at verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses permitted it. Why? God knows the hardness of man's hearts. He just knows you're sinful. He knows you're fallen. But this is not a commandment. It's a concession because of sin. Somewhere along the way, divorce had become so commonplace by this point through the giving of certificates and and all of that, that certificates at this point in time were even being given for adultery. So back in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. But here in the New Testament, certificates were even being being given for that. We might know that pretty well from a a story we're going to be looking at pretty soon here. When Joseph found out that his wife was pregnant, even though they had not come together, what did he want to do? Stone her? No, divorce her. Do you remember that? He wanted to divorce her. Because at this time, uh, that was a road that some men took rather than taking the severe death penalty. But Jesus says something about this in verse 9. We're still in Matthew 19. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So here is the explanation. Okay, Moses, he permitted it. You could have the certificate of divorce, but that was because of your sinful hearts. But I say to you, he says, whoever divorces his wife Take out that except for sexual morality just for a moment. Whoever divorces his wife and she marries another whoever commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The teaching is very clear here. If someone is divorced and goes and remarries, they commit adultery. But in this passage, we have a little exception clause, don't we? The exception clause is except for sexual immorality. Now, what we have to do is look at the original question. What was the original question? asked of Jesus back in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Do you see the reason for the clause? No, it's not, not right for them to divorce their wives at all, he's basically saying. When you do, they commit adultery. But I'll give you a reason except for sexual morality. Does that make sense? He gives an exception clause because of their question. Can they do it for just any reason? No. When you divorce your wife for any reason and they remarry, they commit adultery. But the exception, a remarried woman or man does not commit adultery if there has been sexual immorality by their spouse. The question is why? Why? Does God recognize the divorce then? Does he? Well, let's look at our passage today. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Very similar to what we just looked at in Matthew 19, but we need to look at that because we find out more detail there. Now, what has been the teaching here? Look at verse 32. It's a very similar verse. But I say to you, 
that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, what we have to do is back up and remind ourselves what Jesus has been teaching on adultery. They were priding themselves on the fact that they were not committing adultery. And he says, listen, if you just look at a woman with lust in your heart, verse 28, you have committed adultery. And then verses 29 to 30, he showed them that no sacrifice would be too great to maintain moral purity. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, do what you need to do. And then he comes to hear verses 31 to 32, and he indicts them for what? Committing adultery. How? Because they were putting their wives away in order to fulfill their lusts. And they had just worked it out so that it just took a little bit of paperwork to make it legal. Right? Now I can just get rid of my wife whenever she just doesn't please me, and I'll get a new one. And all it takes is a little bit of paperwork. Is not that the world we live in today? Right? I'm not happy. I'll just get rid of them because it's just a little bit of paperwork, maybe a lot of money now, <laughs> right? And a headache, and I'll go find someone else. But James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. I think the problem is when we look at the other person being the problem, yeah, you, you might get rid of those problems, but we all stumble in many ways. You'll go marry someone else who also stumbles. Maybe not the same ways, but other ways. Listen, you're not getting rid of the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. So here we have some interesting teaching by Jesus. When he goes to look at this divorcing issue, by divorcing his wife on the grounds, other than adultery, a husband, what he does, he makes his innocent wife go and commit adultery if she remarries. And it's assumed that she would do that. Did you know that? Look what he said. He causes her to commit adultery. Now you have to look at that. Why would Jesus say he causes her to commit adultery? Because it would be assumed that she would go and remarry. That was the purpose of the certificate. It allowed her to be, go, to be able to go and remarry. If she was just booted out, who knows what the reason was. But the certificate said, yeah, it's, it's a legal separation and she's free to remarry. So Jesus assumes remarriage would take place. And also the person who marries her would be in the adulterous relationship as well. And the reason is because in God's eyes, she's still married. So two things we can get from this. The first is this. Divorce is permissible if there has been sexual immorality. Now, what does that sexual immorality uh, word mean? The word is pornaya. You can guess what word we have today that is that word. It's pornography. So not only does it include things like adultery, but it includes any abhorrent sexual activity at all outside the context of a relationship between a married man and a woman. It includes uh, all the, uh, the, the, the perversions of that whatever it might be, okay? And, and there's a whole list of them in the, uh, in the Old Testament. But also we're told here that remarriage is permissible if there has been sexual immorality in a relationship. It's assumed that divorce will take place, and it's assumed that remarriage will take place in this passage, both. So both Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 give us biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. But I should add something, that this is not a way out clause, that God has not uh, provided this as the, the, the way out that we should seek. I've met with people who said, well, I just need to pray that my husband will have an affair <laughs> so that, that I can get out of this relationship. Can I just tell you, is, this, is that what we're looking for or is it the heart that God is looking at? It's the heart. It's the heart. Yes, there are grounds that God has given us here, and these are the only 
grounds. And I think the reason we have these grounds, and these are the only ones, because sexual sin in a marriage is the one act that can break that physical union and, and also that spiritual one, that God recognizes the devastating um, effect that that happens. When that happens in a married relationship, the person is wounded deeper than anyone can really get wounded. We looked at that last week. The man who commits sexual sin sins against his own body. But what if that body is aligned with someone else? You sin against theirs too. And it's a terrible separation that takes place. Now, this is just Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Why then, I think this is pretty clear, but why then are there so many different interpretations? Because Jesus teaches on different, in different places, and we should look at all the areas that Jesus teaches on, and we'll try to bring this to a head. Let's turn to Math, uh, Mark, sorry, Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus has a, it's a very similar situation. Jesus is approached by Pharisees. They ask a question, but it's a slightly different question. In Mark chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Question mark. End of sentence. Okay. The last one was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? This doesn't have that. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted, which is the right word, a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And then Jesus gives a very similar answer in verses 5 through 9. Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning, right, that was not so. Two shall become one flesh. And then verse 9, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now verse 10 is a bit different. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So it's like they wanted some some clarification on it. And so he said to them, and it's very straightforward, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You see the teaching there? Now, why did Jesus not give the exception clause there? What was the question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Right? Is that what God wants? Does he want divorce? No. When you divorce, you send your wife into an adulterous affair, an adulterous relationship. Jesus is not trying to encourage divorce. He's not trying to encourage the way out. He gives the exception clause in the other passages because that exception question was asked. Can you divorce your wife for any reason? There's no reason, he says, you should divorce your wife. God created something permanent. But because there's one act that can so damage that permanent relationship, sexual uh, misconduct in the marriage, adulterous affair, that is permissible. God will uh, recognize that. But otherwise, no. This is what he teaches here in Mark 10. And also in Luke 16, if you want to just turn there real quick, it's just one quick verse, and it's really the same, the same teaching, the same phrase he used here in, in Mark. Luke 16, verse 18 Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her, her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So here you have the other teachings of Jesus. Jesus is really, the focus here is he's been indicting them for adultery because they were committing it over and over again because they all were putting away their wives with this, this easy paperwork, this certificate of divorce. And listen, adultery is the focus. Go back to our passage in Matthew. 
That's what he was talking about. Remarriage is not the focus. However, when he addresses it, remarriage is assumed in the passage. So it's not forbidden. So when people say, you cannot remarry, you're getting into an adulterous affair. You're going beyond. You're going beyond. The assumption is actually the other way. The assumption is the person will remarry. And remarriage is permitted. Now I should show you some other places in the New Testament so we can round up all the teaching about this. There is um, another uh, case in which remarriage is permitted, and it's an obvious one. It's in the case of death. In Romans chapter 7, verse 2, it says this, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Okay, so the, the, the bond, the marriage bond, obviously is broken when a spouse dies. And so there, very plainly, they're allowed to remarry. They're released from that law. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, Paul teaches on this, but he also gives an exception clause to that teaching. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she has at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Do you see that? So a woman who loses her husband, he dies, she's allowed to remarry. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking to the church. You have to go back to our study last year of 1 Corinthians 7. He's talking to believers. And if a believer's spouse dies, she's allowed to remarry, but she must marry a what? Believer. Only in the Lord. Which tells us something there. It goes back to that principle that we're not to be unequally yoked. If we're going to yoke ourselves, if two people are going to be one flesh, that means they share one spirit, one direction, one goal, and they're both going the same way toward Christ. Can you do that with a non-believer? No, you cannot. You're going opposite directions. And so Paul adds that exception clause. No, she's got to marry another believer. There's one more passage. It's 1 Timothy 5.14. He says, therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So if there's a young widow, Paul encourages them to remarry, that they should remarry and not get into to trouble. Now, there's one other area. Remarriage obviously is permitted in the case of death, but it's also permitted in the case of a relationship and a marriage with a non-believer. Now, let's look at it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again. And it's verses 10 to 11. Now, this just sets it up. Paul says, Now to the married I command, this is really interesting, yet not I but the Lord, which means he's repeating the Lord's instructions. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, that rounds up the teaching of Jesus. That was really the whole point. You are not to divorce. And a wife, a wife does to d- to divorce, and, and she must remain single. She must remain unmarried, or she's allowed to go reconcile with the husband. That's what Paul says. But we know what Jesus said, too. He gave one exception to that rule, only one, one exception clause, unless there was sexual immorality in the relationship. Now, this is just setting up the teaching, okay? Verse 12, 1 Corinthians seven twelve. But to the rest, I, not the Lord because the Lord didn't teach on this particular thing. So Paul gives us this teaching. I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. 
And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If the unbelieving spouse in this relationship cannot tolerate the faith of their spouse, there's fighting, there's turmoil, there's frustration, etc., then he is... He permits the unbeliever to, to leave that relationship in order to maintain peace, but not the believer. Did you notice that? It's the unbeliever that can depart. Why? Because God has called us to peace. It's incumbent upon the believer to do all he or she can do to maintain the peace, short, short of renouncing your faith, obviously. And we looked at that verse last week in Romans 12. It's, it's as much as possible, as much as depends upon you, live it peaceably with all men. So, remarriage is permitted here because they're no longer under any bondage because the unbeliever wants to leave and God is more concerned with peace. So, we looked at these four basic interpretations at the beginning. Um, And let me just show you which one is the correct one. It is number four. Both divorce and remarriage are permissible only under certain circumstances. And the certain circumstances is one. Jesus gives it. It's one exception clause. If there's sexual immorality in the relationship, that God allows for divorce. But folks, can you just hear my heart for a moment? God doesn't want it. He hates divorce. I have met with a lot of people through the years struggling in marriages. Marriages are hard. It's hard work. Please hear me. It's hard work. So don't get married lightly. Understand that you're a sinner and you're going to hurt and offend your partner and they're going to offend you. They're going to hurt you. It's work. It's work. But listen, if you want God's blessing on your marriage and on your life, his heart is, I hate divorce. I want you to stay in it. Listen, don't be looking and living for the loophole is my point. Yeah, there is an exception clause. God allows that. And I think that's just an example of our gracious and loving God. People can be hurt so deeply by that act that he allows for people to come away out of that relationship. And I know that we have people in this room, probably from all different backgrounds when it comes to this. I'm sure there are divorced people here. I'm sure there are uh, remarried people. I'm sure there are people who have been hurt uh, by an adulterous affair. And I'm not trying to condemn anyone here. What I want to show you is what God's word says and what he intended by marriage. We cannot look at the world today for our example. That is not the litmus test, okay? God is very clear about marriage. And isn't it a wonder that the world is trying to do away with marriage today, right? It's, it's as if that's the problem. This whole marriage institution is the problem. What is that saying against God who created it? saying that God's the problem. Listen, folks, God is not the problem. Marriage is not the problem. Sin is the problem. People are the problem. Our hearts are the problem. I'm the problem. Listen, all marriage problems are heart problems. And when you have a marriage problem, stop and look in the mirror. That's where it starts. It starts there. And listen, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And that's what Paul would really say to us if we're coming to the end of this here. 
Maybe you're, you're here going, well, I'm not married, and this whole thing doesn't apply to me at all. Well, Paul would say, live as you're called. What station in life were you in when you became a believer? And just live faithfully in that station. Did you become a believer, um, already married, but now you're an unequally yoked? Stay in that relationship. He says, stay there. Live as you're called. Over and over again, he says that. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty. this is where he tells us, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And he gives the examples there where you're circumcised, remain circumcised. Uncircumcised, remain there. A slave, he says, just live with it. Were you single? Stay single. Married? Stay married. Don't try to change the situation. Don't look for an alternative. Why? Ultimately, if you take this whole teaching, this whole idea into a place like marriage, look what you can end up doing. Well, I'm in in an unequally yoked relationship, so I need to get out. And I'll go and marry a Christian. And now what's happened? You just sort of instigated this whole chain reaction effect of adulterous relationships. You won't get the blessing of the Lord that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll just end with reading a few verses here. This is where he says it in verse 27 on. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of the world is passing away. That last verse is really what Paul's point is. We live in a temporal world. It's passing away. And as important as marriage is, you know, marriage won't be forever. Marriage is passing away. We're told by Jesus that in the resurrection, we'll neither marry and nor are we given in marriage. But marriage really occupies just a small part of our existence, right? It only exists really here in this life, and it won't exist in the next life. And that's really what Paul is trying to say. Time is short. Time is short. We only have a short time here on earth. So how should we live? Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You know, relationships are, are, are tricky, aren't they? Here's what I would say. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you recognize, yeah, my life here is short, and I'm going to go and serve him forever, How should you be living here on earth? Are you living to please him? Do your relationships reflect that? That's what he would say. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. And when we're concerned for the things of the Lord first, and we show proper care and concern for those things that the Lord has given us, like our lives, our marriages, our possessions, our relationships, then we'll glorify him. We'll glorify him. I hope today that no one's feeling judged at all. I understand many people could walk away feeling so. Uh, God recognizes we're fallen people. And I want to go back to what I started with. We all need need forgiveness, and we all need restoring grace. There is loving forgiveness in Christ. There's restoring grace in Christ. It doesn't matter what your background or your past is but your present matters. 
He wants your heart here and now and today. Is your heart for him? That would be my question. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you teach on such difficult topics like this, Lord, and it's difficult sometimes for our minds to get around all these things, but I really think that's because of the world. I think the world taints our perspective of the things that you intended for good. Isn't that what Satan wanted in the garden? Is that really what God said? Is that what really God intended? Is that really a good thing for you? God, we must remember that all that you've created is meant to be good for us. And marriage is such one thing. You created it. You intended it to be good. It is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. It is obviously meant to be good. And yet we find in this world uh, it, it has been so distorted. I pray, Lord, that you would begin to restore uh, these relationships back to really the glory that was intended by them, that your church would stand strong on truth. The church has compromised today. Sin has come in. Sin has made the church not look like the church. Lord, we won't be that way. We want to stand for truth. We want to stand for you. But I, I also, also recognize, Lord, that we're a room full of sinners. That's just the truth. I am one of them. And Lord, we need your grace every day to live for you. I need grace every day to treat my wife the way that you would want me to treat her and she to me. Lord, we, we need your grace in our lives. Would you rule and reign in our hearts, Lord? Would you just take, take control? Help us not to live in the flesh, but to live and walk by the Spirit that you would receive the glory and honor and praise that is due your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.